Hello, Michael. Hey, Kai. How are you doing down there? Good. I'm in, I'm in North Carolina. I'm sitting on a, my mother's front porch, and there's cars going by occasionally, and the sound of songbirds in the background, too. It sounds awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, I was, there was threats of it being, you know, 90 and 100 and everything. And it's been 80s and cool and uh, slightly overcast and beautiful. So. Oh, nice. So how long are you in North Carolina for? Uh, I'm just here for uh, just under another week. So I'm, I'm coming back to New York next Thursday. OK. And you do this every summer? Uh, I try to. Uh, you know, there was one summer, I guess the summer before last, I didn't make it down, but I went in the winter instead. But uh, yeah, I've got uh, at least one long ongoing project down here photographing kudzu. So uh, it's a way to come and see family and photograph as well. And I have been out already uh, getting some stuff. So that's nice. Yeah. So we are introducing Wendell White's episode today. Excellent. We had a great conversation with him. It was someone that you introduced me to. And it was it was interesting to see the ways that he... Uh, thought about, you know, politics in the landscape, politics in uh, everyday objects, you know, thinking about photographing in the present, but bringing up the past, right? Right. He's a distinguished professor of photography at Stockton University here in New Jersey. And, you know, we we talk a lot about race in his work as photography and politics, but we also opened it up to, you know, what's going on in our classrooms, which I thought was really interesting, too. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so speaking of working on long-term projects, uh, I understand that you've started up a new project, which might turn into a, a long-term project. Yeah, I'm still not sure. And of course, that's the beauty of starting it out. It's all this discovery. I don't know what it's really going to look like or what it might even end up being about, but I finished the Mars Canal work a few weeks ago and it ended where technically the Mars Canal begins in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. And mm. while I was I was photographing there, I, I noticed there were just a lot of people out on their front steps, a lot of kids running around without any adults. And it, it felt a little bit like a, a throwback to the 70s or 80s uh, in the way I grew up. But also I discovered through talking to uh, some of the folks there, that there's a, a factory, a, manu a pipe manufacturing uh, factory in town that still employs a decent number, uh, you know, of the residents of Phillipsburg. And I thought that, too, was kind of old-fashioned. Uh, so the whole place just just sort of opened up to me in a way that I found very interesting. And, uh, and then I thought, well, how can I photograph this differently? You know, not just the traditional, you know, photographs of people kind of hanging out, but... Well, I do want that. <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> photographs of people hanging out, but also to see how much of the landscape, the background of the town that I could keep in the photograph. So I decided to shoot with the Panorama, which I haven't done in a while. The the one by three panoramic camera that Tom Roma built. Put down that uh, demon electric camp. <laughs> you it's actually a lot of fun going back to shooting film for me, and and it's very different. And I I. Did not know where to process my film for a few days. <laughs> it turns out color film has gotten very expensive. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> and there are very, uh, you know, very few places to process it. And there's no, you know, there aren't any places that I could just run it to and pick it up the same day anymore. Because now everybody waits to have larger batches of film. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I can still process it myself, which I will do once I'm back in school. And I have, you know, I have my, I have my old Jobo color processor uh, in the darkroom at Mercer, 
and I can still get the uh, press packs, the C41 press packs. And so once yeah. I'm back in school, I'll process it myself. But for now, I, I actually found a, a wedding studio lab that still processes its own film, and I drop it off there. Nice. That's a good find. Yeah. Well, I know you've been posting or you posted at least one like sample photo on uh, on Instagram, right? So we'll yep. uh, everyone will be able to keep up and see how the progress goes. Yeah, and I don't think it's a it wasn't a particularly great photo, but I think it was kind of indicative of what I found when I was there and and why I'm interested in it. But yes, right. I'll I'll keep posting, scanning and posting. Great. Uh, the last thing I thought I'd want to mention is um, I was thinking about the passing of a photographer, uh, unusual one, Bill Cunningham. And if no one's seen that Bill Cunningham New York documentary, everyone should get on Netflix and watch it as soon as possible. You know, he, he photographed in a world that I wasn't particularly interested in, you know, fashion and everything else and society. But when you hear him like talking from his Carnegie studio that he lived in for many years, for decades, and all of his negatives around him and his uh, filing cabinets and talking about how uh, if, if you don't take the money, they can't own you. And hmm. just, just a great philosophy of life, I thought. so. Yeah, that documentary is really wonderful to watch. And he was a fixture in New York. I mean, uh, he, he crossed over over um, yeah. in different worlds and people recognized him riding around on his bicycle and and photographing and I have a, a funny connection uh, my my school wanted to do a, a Bill Cunningham style photo show for the fashion program mm. and so they they asked me to, to recruit students and we at first I was highly resistant <laughs> because it's not something I was interested in at all. But I have to say, taking the students to New York, having them hang out in crosswalks and, you know, photograph people along Fifth Avenue was was a lot of fun. And it was very engaging for the students. And, and it was I think it did open up their worlds a little bit in terms of photography. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, enjoy the Wendell White episode, everyone. Yeah. And everyone have a great summer. Oh, yeah. All right. So I'll see you when you get back. Exactly. It's a nice steady home, so that's I th leave it on, don't you think? Fine yeah. by me. Yeah, I'm dying. <laughs> For you, I won't. I won't object. <laughs> so, uh, Wendell, you're currently in a show right now at Fordham Lapani Gallery. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, tell us about that show. Sure. So that's uh, one of my projects. That uh, number of, about a half a dozen different projects I've worked on over the years, having to do with African American culture and history. And this particular project is called Schools for the Colored, and it's a portfolio. The, the entire portfolio is a, uh, a collection of 50 images, uh, 30 of which are on display at the gallery. And they represent uh, school sites and buildings uh, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River along the southern portion of the northern state. So it's the oh, southern yeah. portion of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana and Illinois. And I chose that region for a particular, its particular characteristics. One, it was also uh, an area in which I began to find a lot of 
extent uh, architecture and buildings that still existed. And then, of course, gradually I found ways to deal with buildings that had disappeared. But it was also partly because I wanted to make a, a portfolio about segregation and have it located in the north. I didn't want to locate it in the south where there's a sense that, oh yeah, that's the south is segregation. And in fact, I wanted to talk about segregation in, in my work and segregation as a northern experience. And, you know, depending on which scholar you talk to, maybe even a northern construct more so than a southern construct in some in some regards. And that's what these uh, buildings represent. It's called Schools for the Colored. Schools for the Colored, right. And, and you, um, you superimpose structures that are no longer there, right, in place, uh, in the locations, and then, and then there are buildings that are still there, and they are more prominent. The, um, right, other parts of the photo are, are grayed out or ghosted. Sure, right? and part of that came from, I was uh, coming out of a previous project called Small Towns Black Lives, and in fact, some of the first images that I made uh, for the school's project were more like the small towns black lives, which were image and text pieces. But right from the beginning, I really realized that I wanted to rely a little bit less on text, and I wanted to you know, move, because I had worked for 12 years with these text images and had a large exhibition, a large book published, so I wanted to move away from that strategy, but I also wanted to find a way to convey some very specific ideas. And the idea that really stuck for me was going back and rereading uh, a passage early in W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk, in which he talks about a childhood experience at school. And so then he mentions this idea of the veil, which then repeats itself throughout his writing, becomes a famous component of his writing. But I was especially struck by the idea that he connected it to an early school experience. And so then that became the visual representation of a literary idea, in a sense, in the, in the work, which was that the buildings existed in the space, but were separated from the rest of the landscape by the veil of segregation. And so the, the, the value of that for me was that one of the interesting components for me about how segregation works is that it's, uh, it's not like a wall. I mean, there are certain aspects of it where you could use the metaphor of a wall, but it's also, I, I think that Du Bois hit it just right, that the veil was that you were, in a sense, part of a world. You could see that world, but it was not accessible to you. And so it was as if it was placed behind something. You knew it was there. You could see it function, but it was out, out of reach in a way. Uh, so that, and that's why it really does make sense for, to choose the, the south of the north, right? Exactly. Right? I mean, to, to get that crossover area. To get there. the crossover area. And also because geographically, I find that the southern portion of many northern states have maybe more in common with the south geographically, but also culturally in, in a variety of different ways. Now, of course, there have been tremendous examples of racial violence in our history in very northern cities. Sure. I mean, I just was in Chicago photographing uh, the site where, you know, a, a boy swimming in the lake drifted across the invisible race barrier and was killed by rock throwing from people on the shore, on the white beach, 
And that led to days of race riots, which led to, I don't know, 50 or 60 people being killed. I mean, it opened up a huge gaping wound at that time. Uh, but just with that notion that somebody might swim by mistake on the white side of a line for which there actually was no barrier where you could say, okay, here's the right. barrier. You were just supposed to know this is your side and this is our side and this is, this is where you're supposed to stay. Mm -hmm. And they violated that, that construct, you know, that social construct. Right, and you and I are both in New Jersey, so That's right. we can, we've seen the north to south of Jersey. And you, you can feel the difference when you sort of travel through right. uh, architecturally and uh, even socially a bit. But, and right. then you get very close to that Mason-Dixon line near Maryland, in right, and, right. and then it starts to feel very deep south. Exactly. And in New Jersey, I would say it's, it's particularly complicated, although it's complicated in other states as well. Um, in this sense of where the northern part of the state is, where the southern part of the state is. But in New Jersey, the complication is that the southern, what we now think of as the southern part of the state was once thought of as western New Jersey, right? Mm. The dividing line was diagonal across yes, the state. right. And the western part of the state was came under the sphere of Philadelphia, as we think of the southern part of the state, and the northern under the sphere of New York, and, or the eastern part of the state under New York. The northern part of the state and that sphere of New York was much more closely tied to slavery and southern plantations because the factories in the north the had, many, had right. many clients of southern plantations and the Dutch in New York were, you know, major slave traders. And so mm -hmm. the sentiment in that part of the state was a little bit more closely tied to slavery, whereas in the southern part of the state, gradually as the... Quakers came to term with slavery, there became this more progressive attitude towards race. And that's what originally led to, in a way, led to my first project on small towns, black lives, was the way in which so many of these black settlements remained intact in the southern part of the state. Um, I know of one in particular that was specifically started by a Quaker. When I looked at the work online, and I haven't been to I haven't been to Fordham yet, but I'll try to get over there yeah. to see that because it's up through September, I believe. Right? Yes, all the way through September yeah. thirty. Yeah. And, yeah, and if all goes well, it'll be uh, moving down to Mercer in the new Trenton Photo Gallery. <laughs> which oh. Hopefully, will be called the Broad Street Gallery. <laughs> Great, but we'll see. Oh, excellent! <laughs> I can't promise that yet. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> no. you can edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but one of the first things I thought of. Um, I mean, you mentioned segregation, but just the, even the idea of like education, and I, I thought immediately of uh, Ralph Ellison and Invisible uh, Invisible Man at the right. beginning there. That you know, it, where it starts off in school and it seems like things are going to be going well, and then it right. winds up being this horrible farce. Right. But then even more recently, uh, and I have to look because I always mispronounce his name. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' yes. book, right. where, you know, his experience being uh, at Howard University right. winds up being like a powerful part of, like, uh, his identity. So, you know, it's these things are complicated, these, you know, the sites of these schools and, and how they were put together. And as you said, like, part of the community, not part of the community, or, or did community actually build around them at the same time that right. it was being isolated, right? Right. And that, I, I think you find that in many examples or conversations about the segregated schools 
Most of them that remain are elementary schools, although some high schools, New Jersey actually had a state-run boarding school mm -hmm. that was um, just for African-American students. But the vast majority are these elementary schools for a variety of reasons, some of it having to do with a lack of expectation that students of color would go on beyond the eighth grade. So there were these primary schools. Mm -hmm. But then, um, but many communities then would allow students to come into the high schools if they, you know, chose. That opens up that problem. And that's where um, I've heard this over and over again. I've actually been at symposiums with uh, student, former students and former teachers of segregated schools. Um, Bell Hooks has a wonderful passage about this in her book, Teaching to Transgress, which is this notion that in many cases, the black teachers in these segregated schools were really dedicated to their students mm. and created an environment of excellence and high expectations, whereas with um, integration, in many cases, students were seen as interlopers in the previously white environment and or even in places where the segregation hadn't previously existed, the notion that these African-American students aren't worth the investment. They're not going to have opportunities in this society. So as a teacher, why should I put a lot of my time and effort into classical you know, academic training uh, for, for students that, that they believed wouldn't need it. They're not going to college. Yeah, it gets very complicated quickly. Right. Uh, you also hear it often spoken about when people talk about the, uh, the baseball leagues as well. Right, right. right. So absolutely, like, absolutely, yeah, right. What happens, what, what gets lost, what was gained. And, but I, I thought one of the interesting, one of the first photographs I saw were the ones where you would see the existing building ghosted out, you go with the environment kind of ghosted out. Right. You know, drawing your attention to the building, but then it come, I think it, it works even more powerfully when you see the other ones where it's just the black silhouette, silhouette of right. where the building used to be or just the remnants of where, of where it was, right? Exactly, and I found, I found that there are a few examples like that in the work, and I was always very um, excited, I guess I would say, to encounter those opportunities to come up with even more uh, complex solution. So um, in some cases, the silhouettes actually represent the shape of the building as it stood, if I could find a historical photograph of the building. Mm. Uh, in some cases, they're made up silhouettes based on the location. If it's a rural setting, I assume a sort of smallish sort of building and um, a simple building in that way. And so it stands in as a generic shape. Uh, compared to maybe an urban setting where a lot of those buildings were multi-story stone buildings, um, especially later on in, in segregation. Yeah. The two of my uh, favorite, I mean, I, I'm so, I, I really was pleased with everything that came out in that project, but two that I found interesting were in uh, Long, Longwood, Pennsylvania, Charlestown School, the former mining settlement. That was, I, as far as I can remember, yeah, it's the only school where all that was left was a ruin. So there's just this shape of the foundation. So you can oh, yeah. see the, the foundation yeah. of the building, but everything above it has gone. So that was, woods are taking it, over. Woods are right. taking yeah. over. And the other is the other kind of taking over in Mount Vernon, Illinois. The school building became incorporated into a factory, and you can only see the peaks of what had been the original building, but now a kind of industrial space has been, a small industrial space has built been up. built up around that. And so it's been 
consumed, so, but yet you still see a little bit sticking out. So. And, and these spaces and objects and buildings, they have meaning for you because you, you, you talk about this in Manifest. Right. Uh, the idea that the history is infused into these places and these objects. And Manifest, is that your, the latest work that you did? Um, yes, it's one of two ongoing projects. So Manifest is the uh, one currently ongoing project, but I've been working on that for a while, and then I have yet another one. Maybe we'll chat about that later. Um, and that's where I think that, for me, schools gradually led to the ideas and manifest, which was that I then started to, I was fascinated by the idea that the landscape without seeing people would hold these residues of a history and also more than just the history to provide a implication for the present to as a means of thinking about why do we have the structure in the society that we have right now? Why do we struggle with things that we struggle with right now? I meet people all the time that don't know or didn't know before my conversation with them that there were segregated schools in the north. And that, that part of that northern piece, they think, oh, well, that if they they know about segregation, but that was yeah, something that, that must have been in, the in Mississippi. That right? was in right, Mississippi, right? right. So that's <laughs> right. really important because it's important to understand that most of our most segregated states today, in terms of education, are not southern states. They're northern or western states. So you know, places like New Jersey is very high on the list, and Illinois, and places like that are the places that have these school systems that are really deeply segregated and persistently so because the housing patterns are persistently segregated, right? Right, which is banking and how things have been laid out and redlining and all of these historical it, things to keep different people in different areas. Exactly. Yeah. And Into at neighborhoods some point, and out and of other at neighborhoods. some point, the momentum is so great that it is possible to remove the formal requirement for these things and people continue to act out in that mannerism. It's like if you've you know, eating junk food your whole life. It's hard to stop, you know, just like that. There's a momentum built into it and you're going to continue to want to crave certain kinds of things because you have always done them that way. And I think that that happens very much with these, with the racial attitudes that we see today, Black Lives Matter and all of the things that are um, surfacing and the degree to which people may feel unprepared or unaware of where those attitudes or questions or issues are coming from, I hope that this work helps to maybe provide some of that. And in Manifest, I dive into what is, what's being held in the public collections. What are the things that got held on to? Um, and so I move from the architecture and the landscape to still life and objects and what those and because objects I think even more so seem like totems it makes it seem more like a reliquary and I think people identify with that idea that an object is something that uh, contains a precious notion to it. Yeah, and I still run into people who are surprised. Even sometimes my students will bring in a photograph of a black lawn jockey and not realize what that's all about, what exactly. that represents. Exactly. And so that erasure and uh, ahistorical context that gets built up around these kinds of things. And, you know, it happens all the time, sometimes just out of a unwillingness to... Con to confront difficult things, families, communities, whole towns, just 
decide that it's better not to talk about that whatever that was right. than to you know continually explain it to the next generation yeah and i don't know how how true this is because I, I don't have enough experience with the north and the south and, and how it's handled that way but you often hear that in the south it's it's sort of open you know the racial divides and the racism and right. in the north it's it's there just as much just as pervasive but it's more hidden it's not <laughs> spoken about it's there are no, you know, there are no Confederate flags on one side, American flags on the other side. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the other thing is that, which was a an important point for me to come to terms with, which is that I realized the more I traveled north and south, that especially for older residents of the south, regardless of their racial attitudes, they knew who the black folks were that lived in their community. They knew the families, they understood the family structures, they knew who was the minister at the church, they knew who, you know, might have been the undertaker in the community, the barber, all of those things, the individuals, the kids, what family you belong to, all of that, because that remained, regardless of the racial line, that remained part of Southern culture. In the North, I run into people all the time, even today, that haven't got the slightest idea about their black neighbors or black communities nearby them, or even, you know, can think of or call the name of a person that they know and that they've interacted with, et cetera. And it's not all the time, but I do yeah. see it. I, I find it's more prevalent because there's this sense of, well, they're over there and I'm over here. And, yeah. you know, it's not a culture that requires knowing about the surroundings in the way that Southern culture does. So I think that that's where, regardless of the intense violence that took place in the past and still takes place today, all around, that the Southern culture still carries some of that forward, that, that sense of I, I, it's a responsibility for me to know who people are in my community. Yeah, photography's always had a role a historical role, like people right. look at old photographs to learn about the way things looked, you know, and people make photographs of the of the present time to be able to so they to remember, you know, when some family came to visit, and they'll be able to look at those photographs later and understand. But I think what's striking to me about the way you're photographing is you're you're creating documents now, but to try to preserve the past, like the remnants of the past, right? Right. And I've been fascinated. So for me, as a photographer, one of the things that fascinates me is the way in which time interacts there. And mm -hmm. so the notion that something that existed both in the past and obviously in the present, so all of the things that I photograph are obviously here in the world today, yeah. but they have this, they carry with them the residue of these past moments that they that they existed in from the beginning etc and they carry that history with them forward as well and so the way in which the photograph then becomes a a way of navigating that history and a way of navigating that passage of time almost folding time in a sense mm -hmm. so that in for instance in the manifest project i is the objects are some of them much older i'm photographing objects say from the 18th century or or um, even earlier and those objects now have a presence in the in the current 
moment, obviously they're in front of me. And that's part of what I'm doing when I'm making those photographs is acknowledging the fact that this object has survived or existed until this moment that I encounter it. Right, it Same, wasn't thrown away. It wasn't thrown away or in the case of the schools, it somehow survived one for either by neglect. Sometimes the greatest thing that has kept some of those buildings is that they nobody cared about them. Right. So they <laughs> just, you know, got left alone. Right. They weren't in the way of a shopping mall or something <laughs> like that. And the way in which that experience inside the photograph can create a kind of tension inside the photograph, that tension of past and present and touching in a sense, bringing them together. Um, and not so much a nostalgic view of the past, but just that notion that this, the photograph can embody both of those moments in a sense. And, and you are photographing them as precious objects in a sense, right? You're not, you didn't take a picture of them in the, on the dusty floor or, or where they were found or things like that. These right. are well lit on, on dark black background so that the, only the object itself is the thing you look at and concentrate on and stare at. That's so right. the, I mean, the presence and the power of the object was important. Yes, to, to absolutely. Right. And I, I wanted to do two things there so that in all those images, almost all those images, there is both a element of the object which is clearly focused, clearly sharp, and another element, sometimes the majority of the object is out of focus. And so that was one device that I used to think about both the way in which the object exists in time, but more importantly, the way the object has existed culturally, the both presence of that object and the fact that they often are, you know, more or less disappeared into these various collections. Right. Now, and the shallow depth of the field is acting as a, a, a metaphor for memory and history and, and, and loss. And loss, sense. right, exactly, and loss. And now... And you're photographing these with a 4 by 5 camera, right? So you could have done a tilt and swing exactly, and got it all Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, and in fact, that's the reason I used that camera is in order to use the tilt to counter that. Right. So that as I'm looking at the object, I'm actually changing the plane of focus so that it even be intersects the object more narrowly mm. than it might if I was just, you know, photographing it uh, straight on. Right. Yeah, yeah, the the photograph of the, the ring with the, the oh, portrait yeah. embedded in the is particularly yeah. powerful. Absolutely. That's, yeah. That's a, I mean, that is also the remarkable thing for me about Manifest is I've encountered some remarkable objects. Some of them have stories and wonderful you know sort of histories that go with them but some of them are mysterious and the graduate they the collection that has that identifies it as a graduation ring question mark <laughs> they're not really positive they think that's what it was but they don't know who the picture is of and so there's all of that has all of that information has been lost and now it really is this way in which a photograph for me and that's the other piece there is i'm also as i go along i've been fascinated with the way in which photographs get used you know not just as mementos but in this particular case as an object did you title them at all yes uh, just with a description of what they are typically from the collection how they are described in the collection and then the other part of the title locates them in the collection where they are uh that's at the stir museum of the prairie pioneer in grand island nebraska <laughs> nice title yeah right, right. oh yeah i've had great luck by the way with that so places like that 
you know, don't get much interest in these objects. Right. And yeah, so, they're looking for someone to come to do some scholarship. Exactly, them, exactly. Yeah. So they've been, I have to say, places that I've gone have been very open to sharing objects with nice. me. And now yeah. that's a book. Yes, that's a book from California Institute of Integral Studies. The um, Their imprint now is called Chroma, which they're using to uh, publish work for, by uh, photographers of color. And so they've done three of those um, books now, and mine was one of those. And uh, that collection of images was, I think, about where I was with the project in about 2012 or so. But I've continued to photograph, and so there are new images that I've been making uh, since then. And just um, two months ago, I uh, made a set of images for uh, Smithsonian Magazine for the opening of the new African American Museum in the, on the Mall in Washington, and so those will be part of the uh, September issue, which is going to be dedicated to the opening of the museum. Oh, nice. So they'll have wow. essays about from people about the museum, and then they, you know, contacted me to make these photographs in this way oh, um, nice. of the of the collection. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about you taking over the Instagram account uh, right. well, for a while, right. Smithsonian. Right. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, so that actually came out of that. We were, I was there in uh, Maryland and working on these collection, working on the collection at the, I worked at the um, storage facility, not the museum has not, the building has not been turned over to the museum yet, the construction company still in charge. And so even though some displays are being put up, they don't really, uh, it's still a hard hat area and very restricted. So it's hard to, you know, work in there. So we worked at the storage facility, which was fantastic. And everyone was really very, uh, generous and kind as we work. And uh, during lunch break, I just happened to be talking to the photo editor who asked if I did Instagram, and I said that I did. And so it so happened that she had an opening during a week that I was going to be out traveling and photographing for this new project called Red Summer. Uh -huh. And so um, the Red Summer project is me going back into the landscape and uh, making photographs of sites where race riots took place at the beginning of the 20th century. Red Summer is a name that was given to a period of time that riots took place in 1919. And there were approximately 25 of them, depending on which piece of scholarship you look at, there's a, a slight variation as to which communities' riots were considered riots. Um, and that has to do with how scholars define a riot, right? So that's a, that's, that's a little bit of a problem. But so it has to do with who wrote the record. Who wrote right? the record? Well, and also, how bad does it need to be to be considered a riot? And what has to happen? You know, does a death need to happen? No, for many of them, no. But how many injuries or how many people have right. to be involved? Right. Um, as, and as opposed to what was happening at the same time that wasn't really included in Red Summer, which was lynchings were still going on in America. And those were separate, except that some of those lynchings led to riots. So mm -hmm. the famous one in Omaha of Will Brown, that lynching led to a riot for several days and troops had to be brought in to restore peace, et cetera, um, as well as several others. Once I started on that, I also, during, during a little research for it, I started to realize that the period of time, really there's some interesting riots. I did a sort of a talking head uh, interview for a film that's titled 
Wilmington on Fire, and it's about Wilmington, North Carolina, and the race riots which took place there in 1898. They had a multi-ethnic city, civil society, government, a black press, a range of different things, and then there was an uprising in the black community and in the white community, and all the blacks were driven out of town as a result of this riot. The newspaper was burned down, etc. So that had started my interest in this period of time. And then I realized that 1919 was really part of a broader period of time. And, you know, where you cut it off is hard to say. There were a couple of riots, important riots in 1906, but I cut it off at 1917. So I'm looking at a set of riots from 1917 to 1923 with Red Summer as a kind of peak period in the middle there. And so all, all of them, in my sense, are somehow an outgrowth of black communities becoming tired of withstanding lynching as an extra-legal form of justice, which was being meted out on blacks all over the country. During about the 30 years prior to this period of time, there were uh, over 3,000 lynchings, mostly men and boys, although some women as well. There were evidently some whites that were lynched, but the number is very small. I think it's less than a dozen during that time that are known. And so the community start to push back on this. Wait a minute, you know, this is, we don't have to continue to take this. And part of that is connected to the service of black soldiers during World War I. So these soldiers are now participating in the society, in the civil society, again, helping America conduct its foreign affairs in Europe and, you know, presumably fight for everybody's freedoms. And in Europe, they see that they are treated better than they were treated when they were in their, in their home states, especially the troops from the southern states. Mm-hmm. Then they return to the United States and they get stationed in various locations around the South, and many Southerners get very nervous about the idea of armed, trained <laughs> blacks on forts, essentially, in these various states, you know. And so there are all these conflicts that start to occur between military personnel and civilians, mostly black military and civilians, but also white military and civilians. So Charleston, South Carolina, their 1919 riot was a group of white sailors that after a a battle with one black man, all these sailors came from the ships and went through the community and killed several people and destroyed black businesses and a whole range of different things. And I stopped the project with the destruction of uh, Rosewood, Florida. So I, in 1923, Rosewood, black community, a riot begins and the town is decimated. Everybody leaves the town. There's no longer a black town there. Everybody left. And in fact, I'm not sure whether when it was, but sometime in the past 30 or 40 years, I know the uh, Florida legislature actually provided some uh, restitution, financial restitution for descendants of people from the Rosewood community because of what they lost. And at the time, there was no compensation for their lost businesses, their lost homes, all of that. number of people lost their lives. So Tulsa is 1921 and Rosewood is 1923. And those are sort of the 
end pieces, the end, the bookends of this period of time from 17 to 23, but the vast bulk of the sites, about 25 of them, are all happen in 1919. And you're still finding scars of those riots in the landscape there then? Not really. I mean, I th- th- this project represents, I would say, the greatest amount of erasure, although there is some of that. So you see some uh, remnants of that. Um, it's hard to say in some places, in, in for instance, places like Gary, Indiana, which is, you know, in very, um, I mean, there's, there are people doing great things, so I don't want to disparage Gary, but at the same time, they are in bad shape. But that's probably largely because of the town being abandoned by factories. And that's then further complicated by that period of time where African-Americans were not as much a part of the unions um, and a whole range of different things where companies set African-American labor from the South against European immigrants that were working and going on strike, and so they would set them off against each other. Um, And so that's a different complexity, but it was part of that 1919 upheaval. Um, So no plaques, memorials, uh, squares? The only one I know is the one in Chicago. Well, the only one. So Chicago has one, and that's 1919. Uh, I may have missed somewhere, but Rosewood has a plaque up on the side of the highway, and of course the legislature. And Tulsa actually has a um, institute at the campus, the Oklahoma campus that is located in Tulsa, there's a, a an institute to help grapple with that. And of mm-hmm. course, unfortunately, that was not too long ago, the site of another police shooting. That was the one where the volunteer uh, policeman, uh, yeah, yeah, right, um, uh, uh, shot, thought he, says he thought he was going for his taser and, yeah. and, right. and shot an unarmed black man. Right. So, but that was a, a terrible one. I mean, biz- homes were burned, businesses were burned. It was a really, I mean, there were black professionals in that community, dentists, bankers, lawyers, teachers, a whole range of people that were, it, at one point it was thought of as the black Wall Street. I mean, it was such a uh, economically thriving community. And so when it was destroyed, as the result of a mistaken attack on a white woman. It was not, it, it, well, not a mistaken one, a non-existent attack on a white woman. The woman thought that she was going to be accosted in an elevator by a black man who got on. But what's interesting is, once she calmed down, she told the sheriff that nothing had happened, that she was okay, that she had just gotten nervous. And this is that racial anxiety that exists today. And this is why I think these are so interesting in the contemporary moment, because we have all of this fear of the other, whether we're talking about black and white or Muslim, you know, or Mexican, Mexican, right? right? All of these other populations are, you know, illicit fear and anxiety. And so the sheriff actually tried to communicate this uh, to the leaders of the mob that were you know, forming around City Hall and that were wanting this person lynched and all of that sort of thing, because that was sort of the only outlet, you know, that was would satisfy the level of anger in the white community during this period of time. I mean, it was not uncommon that, especially in small towns, sheriffs would immediately take a black man accused of a crime and try to move him to another jurisdiction. Right. They would often get stopped on the road. 
by a large mob, they would turn their prisoner over to the mob, and that would be the, the newspaper that, would right. say that the person was lynched by person or persons unknown. You know, and if you're the sheriff of a town of a thousand people you and three hundred people have stopped you on the road, yeah. you know some of them, yeah. <laughs> if not all of them. Yeah. <laughs> but the, it's so remarkable as you read newspaper articles to see that person or persons unknown mm. is just the standard fare. Mm. Oh, we, we've had a, a our last three guests, including you and and previous guests, have been recipients of the Guggenheim Fellowship right. Uh, right. as well as you are. What was the the work that um, came out of that? Fellowship. How did you apply? Right. So I had been putting together the exhibition and work for the book, Small Towns, Black Lives. So those two things were coming together that fall that for an exhibition that was going to open in the uh, spring and for a book that was published in, in January. So for the fall deadline, I was so close to you know putting all of that together, I decided I would put it um, in an application. I hadn't applied for a number of years. And so it was the small towns, black lives, and this is, leads to what is so common in my work, which is once I got the fellowship, I thought, okay, well, this is great. I have support. I will now have extra time to work on this. And the first thought I had was, because small towns, black lives is just in New Jersey. So my first thought is I want to go outside of New Jersey now and start yeah. to extend expand this, it, yeah. expand it. And in fact, I went to um, Brooklyn, Illinois, and it was in conversations in Brooklyn, Illinois that I learned that that town, pre predominantly a black town, although at one point a multi-ethnic town, had to, the black school board, black board of education, had to build a small school for a handful of white students that lived within their district. Mm. Wow. And it's the only place that I have ever heard of where a black community had to build a se separate school for white students within the black community. <laughs> wow. And that's what then turned me towards Schools the for schools. the Colored because yeah. I started to think how critical, even today, is our idea about school. I mean, we have all these discussions about charter schools uh, in, in just in New Jersey. There's been a huge investigation, and I think it's, is it Asbury Park? I think it's Asbury Park or one of the short towns that has a charter school, and there's this sense that the charter school is primarily for white students within that community and that the public school's been left to the black students and that it's just another form of segregation in right. a sense. If you can uh, afford to, you send your kids here and exactly. it's another way exactly. or, economic, and, or, and economic segregation. Ec right. Economic segregation, but also the idea that there are a set of standards established that are by themselves eliminate often poorly prepared students which make up a certain percentage of the black community in that community. Right. And so that becomes another way in which without formalizing, as you said, economically, but also in terms of preparation, these, these opportunities. So that's what I was fascinated by that. And if you search school segregation, um, you'll find all kinds of other issues. Should boys and girls be educated together? Should people with disabilities be part of the mainstream classroom. So there, are, it continues, and I think it's important because it's the first time we take our children and send, it out, send them out into the world <laughs> and in the public space in some way. And so we have a lot of anxiety about what that means. Yeah, there's also a lot of, um, you know, we have colleagues that are teaching at 
progressive colleges and universities across the country, and now there's a lot of pressure for <clears throat> creation of various safe spaces right. and that and in some ways groups that are feeling uh, you know outside pressure are right. feeling like maybe they need to create separate spaces for themselves again, which is interesting, this right. idea of like self-segregation, you know, right. as which a solution. Goes, which goes back to the complication we talked about earlier of the segregated school to begin with, historically. It may have provided a, an, an environment with more opportunities at some point, and, and yet... You know, segregation had to be dealt with in some way. Right. right. Nobody wants it imposed on them. Right. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, if the choices are a hostile environment where you're not going to be treated fairly, or an environment where, although segregated and maybe disadvantaged in many ways, you will be treated fairly and you will be treated with an expectation of excellence then that's and so this is why these pictures have been so meaningful to me i mean why i struggled with coming up with the right sort of visual representation uh you know grappling with the veil grappling with the silhouettes as placeholders all of those things because it seemed to me that these places were just so important for how we how we see our our, our world right and certainly this isn't a, a defense of segregation this is this is how do you tackle the core problem that your opportunities and how you're treated change when you're integrated right right, right. right. absolutely and that's what I mean even going back to the reference to Bell Hooks I mean she says how difficult it was for her as she went to white integrated schools in comparison to her black school however she says, number one, I would never go back to segregated schools, right? right? So that's important, and I absolutely agree with her. And, but no, and number two, that there were some white teachers that helped her and challenged her and mentored her along the way. The, the problem is how to grapple with all of these folks that just don't want you there, and what is it that we have to do as a society, not just in the United States, globally, to, I mean... This is, you know, England and the Brexit is, you know, we don't want, there's a hostility towards those other people, whatever, right. whoever they may be. I mean, oddly, in, in, in England, it's a, it's a lot towards other white people. I mean, in the, it's a lot of Poles that they, you know, oh, yeah. are getting tired of coming into the country. But it's, we find, we always find a reason to, you know, not want people from the other tribe down the road to come to our campsite. Right. <laughs> no, that hasn't changed. <laughs> and yet, you know, capitalism also depends on bringing in people at a lower labor rate and people who are going to consume stuff too. Right. So you've got to bring people in as well. Right, right. It's like, Absolutely. That's a, that's a Absolutely. conflict. Right. Yeah, looking through your work and seeing what you're concentrated on, it sort of struck me that uh, students often ask me, like, when they see other people photographing people and they so they're like okay if i'm not making portraits if i'm going out into the landscape you know what should i you know what should i be photographing in the landscape you know obviously not uh, sunsets and you know beautiful things or whatever right. you know that can be a challenge because you people have to find something in the landscape that's meaningful to them and i came across a phrase i think it's just on your website where you talked about an African-American landscape Absolutely. and that seems like clearly that if it exists or not, it's something that you're, you're making this world in your work, right? You're, right. you're creating an African-American landscape 
out of the American landscape. Right. And recognizing that African-Americans carved out their own spaces, you know, in spite of the difficulties and the challenges and in spite of the fact that we would like it to be otherwise, it gradually became necessary and it was evident that black people in these communities had to start to shape their own communities in one way or another. And it's it applies in many, I think it applies in many ways. And I, I'm, my institution is in a, uh, where I teach is in a very uh, wilderness almost like setting. We have one of the largest land area, we have the largest land area of any um, university in New Jersey, college or university in New Jersey, and environmental science is a big part of what happens. I say that to say that even for my students that naturally have a lot of enthusiasm and interest in the natural landscape, we talk about the natural landscape in political terms because Mm -hmm. there's no part of the world, no matter where you go, that hasn't been impacted by both the presence of humans but also the political decisions and impact that human beings make. So to try and sort of make images of the natural landscape that don't acknowledge that in some way is to try to sort of imagine again a nostalgic sort of Eden. It's a sort of reproduction of a world of Eden that, you know, we were thrown out of, you know, a long yeah. time ago and have actively worked at, you know, dismantling one way or another. And so Or we uh, showed up in Eden and there was some other people already there. Already there, right. <laughs> right, right, to get, right, right had to get exactly, rid of them. Right, exactly. <laughs> um and so it's so even in that context where we don't see the built environment, which you know can lend itself to narratives in one way or another, but even without the built environment, I try to encourage students that are doing you know uh, work with the natural environment to think of it as also a political space, a space where the activities of human beings are being played out in one form or another. How long have you uh, been at Stockton? Coming up on 30 wow. years, yeah. <laughs> well, so maybe we should, let's, let's go back a little bit. Uh, how, did, how did this all start for you? Yeah, so I, you know, I think like so many people at the time, came out of uh, a graduate program. I went to University of Texas at Austin and had wonderful mentors there who I still remain in touch with. Uh, one who actually is in New York now, one is still in Texas, uh, that were clo- particularly close to me. And... I started out fairly early on having had that experience of what I felt were really good teachers. I wanted, I, it sort of shaped me. I went to graduate school not thinking about or sort of knowing that I wanted to have an opportunity to teach. I came out thinking, you know, what they were doing, what they did for me in a more you know, intimate environment there as a graduate student was something I wanted to do for others as I continue to work. And that maybe as an artist slash scholar that the academic institution would provide a space for me to, you know, make a living and also freedom to do my work. Yeah. The the MFA photo graduate landscape was very different uh, 30 some odd years ago, right? Um, is that how you ended up in Texas? Yes. Well, I started, I was here in New York, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And a painter from the University of Texas was here on sabbatical and uh, contacted an administrator at School of Visual Arts and said, you know, do you know some recent grads that might be interested in graduate school? And in particular, he was looking for artists of color. 
And I'll tell you why in a second. And I didn't realize at the time beyond the fact that I thought, well, you know, they want more artists of color. It's Texas. They can't get people to go there. I knew that much. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not a lot of guesswork. Right. (laughs) And so I but I went down, I looked at it and the people, at least at the university, were really genuinely nice to me. And I thought, you know, it would be an adventure and it was something that I could do. And, you know, there were just a lot of things about it that seemed like it would be... Very different from Newark. Different from, <laughs> right, exactly. Being here and different from uh, what I was doing. And uh, so that was the start of it. Uh, I'll just cycle back around to uh, an exhibition that's on, I think it's still up now in Austin. And they've uh, included a small display of my book, but at the time they, um, they missed me. They did an exhibition of all the African Americans that had received gra- had gone through the graduate program, and I didn't realize that Walter Kistner and I we were he was a painter I was a photographer we were there at the same time we started at the same time we were the first two African Americans to ever go through the wow. graduate program oh at the University of Texas wow. Austin, and so they've done this whole sort of piece you know about the students and 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 unfortunately the sum total today is seven what yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the sum total today is seven wow Um, that's a pretty elite group that's a pretty elite group (laughs) that's how you know right right right. and um you know i think it's and it's it, it's remarkable for the the size of the institution, for the resources that the institution has, and certainly other schools. It's not. It's a school yeah, UT that has, Austin. I mean, UT Austin huge. has other schools that have decent representation in terms of people of color, in particular, and African Americans. Um, but certainly, the art department has struggled. And thinking coming here actually today, I was thinking about this story, and I realized that. Uh, while I had colleagues as students when I was a student at School of Visual Arts, I cannot think of an of a faculty member at the time that was African American in the photography area. I knew there, there were other African American. In fact, the my advisor was African American, but I did not really. I can't think of a faculty member in the photo area that was African American at the time. Mm-hmm. So even yeah. in New York. So that's where, for me, 30 years ago, it didn't seem that odd going to Texas because I was already one of only a handful of students in, uh, at, um, at, at SBA, even though it was a very large department, and there were no black mentors that I had um, as instructors. So all of that made it, well, if it's like this in New York, why would it be right, any right. better in Texas? Right. Right? So I have to ask, because you were at a School of Visual Arts and I went to the School of Visual Arts, was right. Was Alice Becko dead or yes, Alice Beck? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> Helen Butfield. Helen Butfield. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so they were whole. And and that's the point. That go. It connects to what Bell Hooks said. These were all people that were very generous to me, very kind, supportive of me, helped me with a variety of different things. I worked with them. Uh, actually, during the first year after I graduated, I had a full-time job. Uh, at the time, they had this sort of rotating position where they picked a student to 
work in the equipment area oh, yeah. as a full-time job for one that. year and then yeah. they kick you out at the end of the year <laughs> so that you can but then they kick you out at oh, the time no, they alice only let it go for one year oh, and then okay. she didn't want people to just sort of settle in and i think she wanted to keep it as something that right you know would provide new opportunities new employment opportunities for others coming out i settled in i you was th- i was there all four years oh you were there <laughs> no no this was after, after graduation oh after this was special oh, for oh, after you I could only that. you oh. could only do this job job after graduation right right yeah no i had worked as a student worker as well but yeah no after graduation (laughs) you became a staff person for one year for one year so you know that's important is that there were some wonderful instructors uh uh, bernie lawrence who's no longer living paul elfenbein who oh, I, I had paul yeah yeah so yeah, i've yeah. been in touch color with photography paul. color photography yeah. yeah absolutely and a whole range of different people um my senior thesis was with julio mitchell and a range of different people uh, of that nature and the folks in texas while it was a much smaller department mark goodman who's recently uh, retired, but still in Austin, still working, doing a tremendous amount of work. And Ellen Wallenstein, who's now here, who was there in Texas, but now she's here in New York, teaches at Visual Arts and I think also at Pratt as well. Nice. Uh, so we've all stayed in touch over the years. And those were all people that while I didn't, I look back on it and realize I probably would have liked an opportunity somewhere along the way to have had those mentors that would have helped me grapple with the content of my work from a perspective of another African-American or even another person of color thinking about it from a cultural point of view. Mm. These were all people that were you know, significant in helping me think about what I wanted to do, what I wanted to work on. Uh, and especially Mark Goodman, I would say, because he... Uh, came from a background of anthropology, worked on long-term projects that were based on very specific ideas about the world and about how communities are structured. And so, you know, that was, that had, that imprinted on me quite a bit. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, how are your classrooms? Because I, I have, um, I would say uh, my classrooms are mostly women now. Right. And uh, I'd say the uh, a higher percentage of Latino population, you know, maybe every year, mm-hmm. um, and probably uh, the least represented might be African Americans. And I am what a stone's throw from Trenton, right. and I was wondering how they are for you, how the, your classrooms are in terms of diversity. Absolutely, it's it's similar. I would say that yeah, I, I and the only other group that is becoming more significant for us is. Um, Asian and South Asian, sure. um, yes. because we have a, a strong international outlook at the, at the institution too, and so the number of uh, South Asian and Filipino students has grown over the years and wind up in the art department, in the photography classes. Also, the same sort of experience. Typically, just a handful of African American students over the years, and only less than a half a dozen that have come through the photography program to graduate, I would say. Right, right. And I think that is connected to a variety of different things at the the institution. One is that it is a, um, I think it's a a very good art program and students, you know, do a good job. But, and I have, you know, former graduates that have gone on to do a whole array of different things and been successful. However, it's not the pro, it's not the type of program that is that typically attracts African American students that are really interested in and talented in the arts because I think that 
those programs are typically programs that have more. Uh, so I'm the only African American ph photography, uh, only African American art faculty member, mm -hmm. okay, in the program. So they can study with me, but and unlike my experience in school, there'd be one person at least hmm. to study with, and many of the students do that. Come make sure they, even if they're not photography majors, take a course with me. But there are schools around this country that are much more attractive mm. with it, with, for that regard in, in terms of what they can offer, the kinds of other um, African-American scholars, and I would say that that's another thing that the college is working on, but not having enough African-American scholars in all the disciplines. And so I think that schools that have fewer African-American scholars throughout the various disciplines are going to always struggle in terms of you know, drawing students um, to them. Right. And then, of course, I'm the only full-time photo faculty in right. my program. Right. And so I, I hire adjuncts. And, right. and I have a pretty, I've had a pretty diverse group of adjuncts, right. except for African-Americans. Right, exactly. So, so it, it kind of perpetuates a little bit. You don't get right. the photo graduates. You don't get right. the photo adjuncts. Right. right. Although you, for many years, you know, was Lou Draper at... Well, at Lou Dra I have at, Lou Draper's job. You have oh, his yeah. job. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 So... Yeah. You right, know, and he ran the program for many years. He ran the program, years. and he right. now has all of this, you know, uh, post-mortem recognition, unfortunately. I yes. mean, fortunately right. that it's come, but unfortunately that it's post-mortem. Right. But, and we exhibited Lou's work, et cetera. But I knew, I got a lot of Lou's students uh, that would come to finish their four-year degree from time to time. And I think that the same thing was true then as well. So I don't think that it has changed dramatically right. uh, over, over time. I know I came from a family, and maybe others do, that didn't see photography as... That's, that was going to be my next question. A worthwhile and investment for a black man to go to college. Right, a viable sort of opportunity, right, right? a viable right. path. Yeah. And that's partly because of what I experienced, which was, well, where are the role models in that discipline where are the people that are going to help you because for my parents generation especially and i think it probably is still true for many people going forward well the world is still based on a racist idea of who gets help and mm -hmm. who gets moved forward and so if you go into a field where there are not people that will at the very least look at you and think Here's somebody that deserves a chance, even if it's not more of a chance than somebody else, as opposed to the perception, which is that people of color get dismissed in terms of opportunities in if the person deciding is white mm -hmm. perception, then, you know, you are likely not to encourage your kids to, to do something like that, even if they're interested. Right. But also just you know, okay, you're going off to college. Right. Why not get a degree in something where you're going to make some real money? You right. know, like, well, you right. know, right. as opposed to, I mean, even 30, I'm, now my next question is going to be how you decided to go from Newark to SVA. But right. um, you, that's a lot of uh, recent immigrant families, right. you know, and of course people of color, that's a real struggle. Like there's a lot of pressure from the family. Right. And we've right. spoken about this with a couple of other guests. Is like, how did you wind up being able to go to art school and there might have been this pressure to why aren't you becoming a lawyer or a doctor or right. you know a real professional you know? absolutely and I and there was I actually 
caved into that pressure my first year of college and went to a college that actually is now defunct in East Orange, Uppsala uh, College. And because my mother really couldn't see it, you know, Mm -hmm. and but I was so unhappy after a year that I just basically said, well, you know, I've got to strike out on my own and moved into New York and got a job and started going to school. And, and you were already photographing before And I was this? already photographing before that, right. In high school. In high school, exactly. Yeah. I was fortunate. I went to a couple of different high schools in New Jersey, but I was at Montclair where there was a wonderful art teacher who got me started uh, in photography and, you know, got me working on projects and I did photographic murals for the school and things like that. Yeah. So there was a lot going on in terms of, of art in that school and in particular photography, darkroom, all of those kinds of things that, you know, are non-existent today in in Mm. high schools. But all of that got me started. And so I just stayed with it, you know, all along. Uh, I have to say my mother was very generous in that she would allow me, we live in an apartment. And so she would allow me to convert one of the bathrooms into a dark room temporarily. I had to set it up and totally dismantle it after I was finished. Still, that's good. And it only worked at night. Yeah, that's not bad, though. Right, but it was not bad. And so she wasn't, uh, you know, she's partly responsible. No, she's no longer living, but she's partly responsible for having encouraged it in me. And and even though my parents were separated, my, my father then was helpful once I got to New York with tuition and things which were at the time seemingly it seems almost like an amount of money that was free compared to tuition (laughs) today i think i paid about 1100 a semester (laughs) at sba (laughs) at the time and uh, when i went to texas Uh, because i got a fellowship my tuition was 300 dollars a semester yeah yeah Yeah. exactly so i assume yeah you're not uh, crippled by student loan debt then (laughs) right right yeah i paid that off last year (laughs) (laughs) still had to buy photo paper right did both your uh, parents, um, were they, did they work? What did yeah, yeah, your father they, do? What did your mother right, do? Right, right. So my mother was uh, a social worker and uh, basically did, I mean, she didn't work in the field by the time I'd say I was in high school, maybe even before high school. She was sort of supervising programs. She worked for DIFAS and other programs in New Jersey. And um, my dad uh, was an attorney, worked for the government then he worked for IT&T when they were oh, still in sure. communications yeah, before yeah. they became schools and hotels right. um, and because he was a communications lawyer and then he taught at St. John's sort of you know towards retirement so the challenge there I think for both of them was also what can we do to help you because that's not not just what will others do to help you it was what can we do to help you and they didn't I think feel prepared to be able to help. And I know in conversations later on, I think by the time I started to develop some success, you know, get work and then eventually get a teaching position and, you know, all the things that gradually, you know, led to a certain amount of success, which they both were able to see. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. They, we had conversations about that and that was their sense was that we, we didn't really know what to do to help you or who to put you in touch with. We had no, they had no contacts in the arts in that way. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I think the uh, part of it that was a challenge, they didn't feel empowered and capable of being able to provide that kind of right. uh, support. And I think that's an important piece of the, of the project. There's a, when you mentioned the, the challenge in general for parents thinking about a student going into the arts or photography in general, yeah. it's also, I think that there's this 
this, a distinction has to be made between undergraduate and graduate education because undergraduate education, in my mind, can prepare you for a particular career, but most people aren't yet prepared. The, the, the traditional student, 18 to 22, whatever, 23. I think more now than ever. More now than ever. Aren't really yeah. prepared for, even after they've gone through, let's say, something very practical, like a health science program, they're not necessarily prepared for what it means to work in that field and to do it. They haven't thought, unless they come from a family where they have had the opportunity to see that and know it and understand it. And so I see that in my daughter. She works in the arts, but she grew up in a household where she knew what it meant, what it was like, what all of those kinds of things involved. But I think that that's what I see in my students all the time is simply that they, because of the type of institution that I'm at, they don't have that leg up in the particular discipline. So I don't think it's the arts. I think it's any discipline. Sure. So if you are in a family that has no background in law, and you go to a kind of public institution and get a degree in law, you don't have somebody necessarily, unless you've met, made a c close connection with, and that's where the graduate programs come in, if you have made a close connection with a faculty member that's going to help you and mentor you, right. you don't know how to get started in a law firm or all of those kinds of things. I mean, the schools are now doing more to help people with those things, but you haven't got that you know, built-in advantage that somebody who is essentially following in a kind of, has grown up as almost an apprentice in the, in the field because their parents were doing it or something like that. So if I had gone to law school and been interested in communications, I would have had a tremendous advantage right. by being able to go to my father on a regular basis and say, what do you think I should do? Where should I go? Who can you put me in touch with? Those kinds of things, you know, would have been tremendously helpful had that been something I was interested in. Or with my mother, if I was interested in social work, growing up mostly with her, I mean, I, you know, knew what her life was like. I knew what she did, what, yeah, it, what you know, it involved. You knew the ropes. I knew the ropes, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've told this story before, but I did a similar thing. I went... I succumbed to the pressure. Everybody was going to be an engineer. So right. I went to Lehigh my first year for engineering, and I was kind of miserable, and that's when I went to SVA right. after that. And But when I told my aunt and uncle, who I was living with at the time, they didn't know what to make of it or what to say about it. You know, it was right. a pretty blue-collar life that they had. And but they, the closest thing they had was their son, who was a priest. So they asked him <laughs> right, right. what they right. thought right. of it. Right. That's <laughs> mysterious. Right. We don't know what, what that, right. how they do it's that. kind of artsy in a way, <laughs> right? right? right. <laughs> Performance art, right? Right. right. Uh, I I know I was very close with a photographer, uh, Rob Steinberg, Robert Steinberg, who ran a company, Palladio, which made platinum palladium, oh, yeah, right, coated right. paper up in Boston, and he was coming from a background of shooting eight by ten, eleven by fourteen, just very steeped in traditional photographic practices. But when I met him, which was in nineteen ninety one, maybe ninety two. He had just been infected with the digital bug and like making digital printing and trying to figure out a way of, and of having digital come into his life. And partly that happened because he spent time up at the main photographic workshop, which right. I saw you did too, right, right. around right. that same time. Is, is, do you also credit that as like giving you the opportunity to like embrace this technology so young and early? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I was early on 
an, an enthusiast for anything that had to do with technology. But not only uh, Maine at the photo workshop, but also um, the, the piece of that that was also in Maine that really sparked it for me was the Center for Creative Imaging right. that was in Camden that was the spinoff of these Kodak execs exactly. that, that started this. And so that was my first time sitting down they had all those computers they had all the computers yeah. and die so and none of that was and i was already teaching but none of that was available to me at my institution the institution yeah. was, was all incredibly expensive it was all incredibly expensive and you know but they weren't making those kind of investments in photography at the time right and so that really started me and so then i started making my own investments and gradually figuring out piece by piece how i could do it and i look back on it and obviously some of it was silly you know i mean my first digital camera cost me a thousand dollars and it was a one megapixel <laughs> camera so yeah. needless to say i don't really have anything from that camera that yeah. you know is useful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> since it since my phone laughs at it now <laughs> um, uh, but that opportunity to go there and i have to say part of that opportunity came from both support from my institution, and this has been critical for me all along, that uh, gradually the institution really did become supportive because mm. at the time our president was a, a chemist, and so she was really interested. She was both African-American and a PhD in chemistry. And mm. so if you brought to her an idea that had to do with technology, she really would sign on. Nice. And, oh, what's that like? Right, 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 <laughs> right, right, right. And... At the same time, I was serving on the Kodak Educational Advisory um, uh, Committee, and uh, that was in the days of Ken Lasseter. Mm. And Ken would hold these meetings in different parts of the country, and because right. these were all former Kodak guys, he decided one winter that we would have our meeting up in Camden, and that if we were interested, because I think he felt like he could, in a sense, see the bug of digital with a number of educators around the country, they paid the workshop fee and our hotel fee to do the workshop for a week and then we stayed for an extra two or three days to do the committee meeting stuff. Ah, nice. So we got a full week with the workshop and then we went on to, to do the committee work. But the advisory council work, that was really what, what sparked it. So I had support from the institution, time some money to help support what I was going to be doing and buying materials, et cetera, and also this opportunity that was supported by Kodak at the time to you know, spend a week at that workshop. And so that really got me going. Interestingly enough, the interdisciplinary nature of the institution where I work allowed me to also develop a friendship with a literature professor who was very interested in the internet at the same time. And he dragged me downstairs in sort of like the bowels of the college where there was some uh, silicon graphics machines set wow, up running yeah. Unix. And he was like, look, you can look at a coffee pot up at MIT and see when it's full or not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was right at that same moment, around yeah. 1991, 90 to 94. Yeah. So I was up in Maine, and I think it was 91, and somewhere in that next year or so, he was... And so my enthusiasm for... Uh, the digital image and beginning to think of, and I had come back from Maine with a stack of digital prints, you know, so that was very exciting. And so all of that just, you know, just skyrocketed. Yeah. And he got me involved in, in web pages and web design. So I was helping, he was designing pages and I was creating graphic images for them. And it just, it just continued. And you have an archive on your website of 
the the earliest version yes. of um was it called cemetery did you originally call it yes cemetery? oh right yeah. originally called cemetery mm-hmm. small towns black but, lives right. eventually right. right and cemetery went on and i've still struggle with finding an exact date but the earliest version of the website that i found was 1995 which is you know pretty early there yeah. i think i was fiddling with it earlier than that have you tried the uh, internet archive the yeah way the back way back yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah and and so i you know, some of them some of the earlier versions or different versions iterations along the way i've recovered from that and then i also did find some old disks that i had stored information on was still able to retrieve uh and reconstruct so I have a, you know some screenshots of what those early sites would have would have looked like, and that also became critical for me because I started mid '90s. I was still making analog darkroom prints, and then in the late '90s I started making digital images of these manipulated landscapes. But by 2000, 1999, 2000, somewhere in that range. I had started experimenting, and maybe even a little bit earlier, started experimenting with digital prints for the small towns Black Lives, Mm. combining image and text. So the first images, which in 91 were part of an exhibition curated by Deb Willis that traveled around the country called Convergence, they were silver prints, an image in one opening on a mat, and a print on silver paper of text on another image in another window on the mat. But by the time the exhibition came together at the Noise Museum, they were uh, digital black and white prints. And I was, at the time, very enthusiastic about what John Cohn was doing with just all black inks. And so I had a 24-inch printer that was just (laughs) running black inks. And so I was making these black and white prints, and, and I made a little over 70 of them for this exhibition that toured for about five years. Yeah, so it sounds like that really, all the stories I hear, I mean, we, so Rob Steinberg, he set up a sister company to the Palladio, and first thing he did is he bought two Silicon Graphics workstations, and we had this Iris printer, and we were doing all that kind of stuff, and I I think it was those times, you know, that having those resources from Kodak and this amazing spot to to do it made it possible to, to move forward. Uh, you mentioned a name that I think we should bring up too is Deb Willis. So she yeah. also wrote for your book, right? For the small towns, small black towns lives, and included your work in um, several of her yeah. books. So yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking of um, the bio bibliography, um, yeah, the portrait. What's the oh um, posing beauty? Yeah, right. posing beauty. Posing beauty. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, envisioning emancipation. Envisioning yeah. emancipation. Exactly. So a few of those, and so. I, you know, she's someone that has been amazing person, but also someone who's been very supportive of so many photographers uh, over the years. And I met her early on, um, actually through, I I was recommended to look her up by Ellen Wallenstein, who had been teaching at Texas, and I was returning to New York. Ellen knew of or knew Deb at Pratt, Mm -hmm. I think, as a graduate student. And Deb was at the Schomburg at the time. And so, in fact, we met and there was a, I still have a catalog there. She then, shortly after we met, was putting on a show. And I don't remember everybody. I know that Albert Chong was in the exhibition. There were 14 photographers. I think Albert was in, Chong was in the exhibition. Uh, Elizabeth Sunday, Jean Mutasami Ash, Ming Smith, and a few, and obviously, somewhere up to 14 (laughs) (laughs) photographers were in the exhibition um, at the Schomburg. Mm. And what was 
remarkable at the time was that I was making photographs that didn't actually, I was experimenting with landscapes. And so these were not pictures of African-American culture. And so in a way, she was really very brave and supportive to say at this institution that was dedicated to African-American culture, that here's a, a, a black artist and we should include him in this exhibition to think about the range of things that black artists are interested in and working on right. and that they may not always be pictures of black people mm. or about black culture. Um, and does that, and I think she was always looking at those questions and challenging those questions. And I think Posing Beauty is a great example of that sort of what is it that we're yeah. really looking for when we're looking at images and what, is it, what does that really mean? Yeah, what's being consumed, what's being, what's the thing you're pre-digesting to expect. Absolutely. You certainly uh, ado uh, adopted digital photography early on. Uh, do you still teach uh, black and white film yes. at Stockton? Yes. So we still have a dark room. We still teach film. We were fortunate to scoop up about 20 Vivitar <laughs> 35 millimeter cameras just before they stopped making right. them. And so, and, and it really was fortunate because I'd been asking for years because I thought yeah. it's getting harder and harder for students to find these cameras yeah. and they buy them used and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. And true. luckily there was just this little pot of money. And this is another way in which the college or the university has been so supportive, which was to sink several thousand dollars into buying mm -hmm. 20 Right, thirty-five millimeter film cameras. I mean, right. I, I tried to get imagine my, making that point. You know, I, well, I tried. I tried <laughs> right. getting my college to do the same thing, and they'll right. buy me digital cameras, right. but they just wouldn't buy me film cameras. Right, exactly. Yeah. So we're fortunate that way. We still encourage students to try to get their own camera, but if they can't, we have a little supply of cameras that they check right. out for the semester so they can have it for the semester and they'll have a camera yeah, yeah. Nice. and and you also um are not shy on social media you are on instagram facebook right. twitter right you have a, a f your own site website wendellwhite.com right. one l in wendell right. thank you yeah. <laughs> we'll link to everything we'll right. link to everything um but and a lot of links for different projects other websites you've worked on things like that right you know, I think all of that started that early experience working with Ken Tompkins, that literature professor who was so enthusiastic about the web when it first was branching. And he had been on the internet before, and I had actually been as well. So I had set up a gopher site for, oh, wow. uh, yeah. for, for SPE oh, yeah. early on. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, pretty much nobody looked at it because, you know, they <laughs> like self-selected other Right, right, exactly, <laughs> that were excited about things like the gopher. <laughs> but I was so, even pre-web, I was interested in that idea that there would be a repository of information someplace that you could access from other parts of the world, you know, easily. And so that just has continued. And I would say that um, sometimes that list of things seems daunting, but I've also been somebody that has looked at tools. And so I also utilize tools that help me in the propagation of information in different places without having to do it plottingly one at a time and <laughs> one after another. So, and I do it differently so that it's not always the same. So I do vary it. But um, in a sense, if I want to, I can make an Instagram post that will appear as a draft in the news feed of my uh, WordPress site. And then if I accept that draft, it then propagates to Facebook, 
Twitter, right. LinkedIn, Tumblr, etc. And I don't have to keep going to all of those places. Right. Nice. Uh, I get maybe this a good project to end on because it's a little cur- curious. It's a, an extension of other stuff you worked on, and that's. Uh, uh, let me get the title right. Uh, Village of Peace. Oh yeah, yeah. So this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a community of people who decided to leave Chicago. They first went to Liberia for right. two years, and then right. for various reasons, I suppose that didn't work out, or they decided to move on to Israel. After well, they moved. They always intended to go to Israel. Okay. Right. So it's via, via via right. And so the the narrative in their community was that. African-Americans were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. When the tribes dispersed, they were part of a tribe that traveled south into Western Africa, were as relatively new people, susceptible to other tribal efforts to trade in slaves Mm. with slave traders, and so that their belief was that most African-Americans descended from slaves were are in fact descended from one of the tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so, but they believed they needed to go back to Israel through the route that they came out of. And so that was the idea of going to Liberia, was that it was first to go back to Western Africa before, you know, moving Uh, into into Israel. Um, And they still have, I think, connections. They still have a settlement in Liberia. I think they also are connected to Ghana and DAR, different places uh, in Africa. So they have kept up a very Afrocentric view, even from their locations in Israel. And I was fascinated. Some uh, faculty from the university were going to Israel. They came back and told me about the community. And I became fascinated because I was, at that time, had been working on black community and African-American community. I got interested in this idea of an expatriate, black, African-American community located in Israel, and people helped me gain access. Mm-hmm. And the access, I guess, is not impossible, but not easy. They're not, it's not a community you can just sort of walk into. You have to kind of go through channels. And, but then once I got access, they were really quite you know, generous with allowing me to go through the community and to photograph and do portraits and all of those kinds of things. It's a fascinating community. They're vegans. It's a polygamous community. They struggled for about 30 years with Israel in terms of their status. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Because anyone can um, become an Israeli citizen if you're willing to go through Orthodox conversion. Right. And some American Jews have to go through Orthodox conversion because they can't offer evidence of uh, an orthodox uh, background. Aliyah, right. Right, Aliyah, right. And that's what the Beta Israeli, the Ethiopian Jews, do as they come into into Israel. Mm. But this group felt that their narrative was such that they already were Jews and that it was insulting Mm. or whatever to ask them to go through a conversion, and so they refused. For And this was a battle that went on for 30 years, and eventually, now the way they tell the story, and I think some other people tell it this way, but certainly parts of this is true. I don't know what impact it had, but there was a bombing at a, at a wedding party in Tel Aviv in the 90s or early 2000, something like that, during the first Intifada, I think it was. And 
This group is very active in Israel, and they've made money as performers and singers. A lot of them came out of the music industry. Several of them came out of the music industry in Detroit, um, as well as Chicago. And that's how they have recording studios in their community, and they, you know, just use music a lot as a way of life. So one of their, one of the members of their community was performing at this wedding, and evidently did something to help saved the life of the bride and was himself killed in the attack. And so that evidently opened a door to a negotiation that allowed them to develop permanent resident status and with some caveats. The, like voting? or yeah, yeah, I think they can vote. Oh, okay. uh, it's a relatively small community. They serve in the military. Oh. Yeah, so they are. There's a, uh, in fact, even when I yeah, was there. Yeah, one of your photographs. Photographs is, is the, they're just uh, young yeah, man, in a military outfit. Exactly, yeah. and woman as well. Oh, yeah, and a woman. But I think one of the only caveats was that they could not, they had to, there was a cutoff because there's still a vibrant African, Hebrew, Israelite community here in the United States, and it was that there wouldn't be any more immigration from that oh. community, that they could only, the people that were there currently. They wouldn't set a precedent. They wouldn't for, set a precedent right, for that, right. to keep for them to keep coming. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't know what it's grown to. I think at the time that I was there, the community was about three thousand thirty five hundred primarily in Demona but also living in other parts of Israel as well they originally were in Mitzpah Ramon and then they also lived in Arad um, as as mm-hmm. in you fact, mentioned the Negev desert and the Negev desert right, right exactly yeah. exactly yeah and and their children be are citizens and their children are citizens yeah. and they actually and what was remarkable for me as well is that as one of the things that has been a tradition in Israel various special communities can have state-sponsored special schools. So the ultra-Orthodox communities can have the state pay for a school, but that operates entirely under the control of that community, the rules and regulations, et cetera. So they have a school like that, which is this all-black school, essentially, and and even though they do have one or two white teachers it is you know operated under the rules and regulations mm-hmm. of that community and the belief system and the yeah. belief system yeah. right, right. of that community wow, amazing yeah well thank you thank, thank you, you for coming know, uh, coming pleasure. up here yeah, yeah. yeah from new jersey from new jersey yeah <laughs> like yeah. me right exactly. it's always uh it's been a pleasure talking about this, and yeah, Wendell, thank you thank for you your so interest. Much. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's been great. You. All right, well, goodbye, everyone. Yeah, have a great day. <laughs>